Father, we thank you for this day of rest, this day that we can come apart from the pleasures, from the cares uh, of our week and be refreshed in who we are, pilgrims and strangers in this land, pressing towards our heavenly home. Uh, Help us to walk faithfully as we do so. In Christ's name, amen. So, young people, this is your opportunity to make a beeline for the exits. And not so young people, we are going to be continuing a study that we began, I think, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, maybe. (laughs) So if you've lost your spot, uh, quite understandable. Uh, Meredith and I have really been blessed and refreshed by spending some time away, and it is good to be back in the saddle. So we are on page 936 in your hymnal, uh, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29 on the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so considering what Scripture has to teach about the Lord's Supper, what the Lord's Supper is for. Now, last time that we looked at this, I gave some introductory uh, remarks, the connection between the Lord's Supper and the Passover, uh, the importance of the Lord's Supper in that Jesus instituted this on the night in which he was betrayed. He knew full well what the next step in his ministry was going to be. It was going to be the single most difficult thing that he had ever done. And in the face of this very uh, I, I hate to say apex, but uh, the, the, this, this most significant part of his ministry, his care is for the church, and particularly for the church going forward. It wasn't just for the disciples then. He institutes this sacrament for you and for me, for his followers ever since. And so the Lord's Supper as with baptism, is a significant mark of the church. Now, we're going to go all the way back to uh, the earlier chapters on the sacraments. This is why there are only two. There are only two sacraments. When we add other things, other signs and seals of our commitment to God, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie uh, The Incredibles, but one of my favorite lines from The Incredibles is the great arch villain who is going to make everybody have a superpower by his mechanical expertise because when everybody is super, nobody is super. <laughs> or when everybody's special, nobody's special. Uh, forget exactly what the line is. But that's the danger when we add things to these two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. When everything's a sacrament, nothing is a sacrament. Uh, when everything is special, nothing is special. And, and the scripture specifically gives us these two things. Now, I read an article earlier this week that somebody forwarded me that was very helpful, uh, about, uh, Calvin and Zwingli's disagreement over the Lord's Supper and how actually close they were. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to follow up because the references that the uh, writer mentioned are to a book that I have not read, but basically he argues that Zwingli held essentially the same view that John Calvin held. 
uh, on the Lord's Supper, which is going to completely change my licensure questions that I ask other people. <laughs> so I got to chase that one down and make sure of it. But but the point of the article was how these two men who were so close together on everything else absolutely broke fellowship over this issue of the Lord's Supper, so much so that when Zwingli was killed in battle, Martin Luther said that he was a blasphemer and a heretic because of his views on the Lord's Supper and the way that they differed uh, from Martin Luther's. Um, which I think is, you know, place it in its historic context. We needed these bold men at that time. The entire organized, quote-unquote, church of the day is saying, if you're not a Roman Catholic, then you're going to hell. Uh, they, they, when they were excommunicating them, they were placing them outside both the visible and invisible church. And so you needed guys who were very strong in their convictions. But our convictions cannot be so strong that we move them beyond what Christ's convictions are. And so I think one of the, one of the central things that we need to understand about the Lord's Supper, can someone read for me 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14, through 18. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 18. That's good right there. <laughs> so, do you hear the language that Paul uses when he speaks about... Now, now in the context, Paul is saying, don't participate in idolatry. Don't participate in idol worship. Well, what's the basis upon which he says, you and I should not participate in idol worship? He uses, you're not participating in that, but rather you're participating in what? the body and blood of Christ. You're participating in the Lord's Supper, the cup which we drink, the, the bread which we eat. Uh, the, Paul's referring to the Lord's Supper, and he uses it as a distinguishing mark of the church. In the same way that earlier, the apostles will use baptism as the distinguishing mark of regeneration. Uh, the Lord's Supper is that thing which makes the church separate from the world. It makes the church different from everybody else. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a teaser. This is bonus points for showing up early for Sunday school. Um, one of the cool things about the tabernacle 
is, and, and we'll develop this more, Lord willing, in the sermon, but the, the entry to the tabernacle in 20, uh, Exodus chapter 27 and verse 13 is specifically said to be on the east. The, the tabernacle structure is always to be set up with the entrance facing to the east. Now, anybody have any idea why that is a hugely significant feature? Christ is going to come from the east, okay. I, I wasn't thinking of that, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a good, uh, uh, it, it connects to the thread. So, so, the Pentateuch, Exodus, the Exodus story, Moses, Israel, all of that, who is the big national power that's in their background? It's Egypt. And so what does Pharaoh do every single morning? He greets the sun. Pharaoh is the representative of the sun god, Ra. And so every morning, Pharaoh goes down to the Nile, and he ritualistically greets Ra. As Ra rises up, he greets his elder brother. To go into the tabernacle, what do you do? You turn your back on Ra. You are, you are directly turning your back against the east and entering into the tabernacle. We'll develop this a little bit more, uh, later. I think it's significant. Uh, but the point of turning your back on Ra and going in to worship Jehovah God, going into the tabernacle is that the Christian life demands a rejection of other things. And the Lord's Supper, Paul says, is this symbol of a rejection. And I'm going to put world in quotes because it's not that he's saying go join a monastery. He's saying don't participate in the worship. Don't participate in the things that these people say are the most important things in their life. The Lord's Supper is a turning our back against we are first and foremost Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or Independents or Socialists. We are first and foremost Carpenters or Accountants or Doctors or Lawyers. My first and foremost identity is my fellow Shriners or my fellow golfing buddies or whatever. <laughs> Our first and foremost identity is the body of Christ. And the Lord's Supper is what is both a reminder of that, but as well as it's our own testimony uh, of that. And so, section 1 of chapter 29 is picking up on that. Our Lord Jesus in the night wherein he was betrayed instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. 
as members of his mystical body. So it's a rejection, it's a turning our back on the world, and it is a communion with Christ and with one another. Now, I think this is important to emphasize because, A, it's deeply sad that this thing, which is to be a demonstration, encourage us, refresh us in our communion with one another, a commitment of, or a, a declaration of our commitment to Christ, becomes something that divides us from one another. And that's a shame. That, that should not be. Uh, we end up kind of marking out <laughs> that portion uh, and, and really focusing in on this is our communion with Christ. Uh, and yet Christ, and, and I'm taking this from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is, is saying that this is an essential element of it. Uh, the, this communion with one another. Now, I think one of the reasons maybe that we tend to downplay this part and emphasize this part is because we kind of like coming to the table and not being reconciled with each other. I kind of like knowing that I'm coming to the table. I can't stand that person over there their politics are horrible, they're socially awkward, they offended me six months ago when they looked at me funny, and I thought it was because they were judging me for wearing my hair parted the wrong way. I can't stand that person. But I'm going to come to the table. Do you see the problem? (laughs) And beloved... If we are recognizing that this communion with one another is so central an element to the table, so central an element to the Lord's Supper, then I think we have to be much more aggressive about making sure that we are reconciled to our brothers and sisters. Now, reconciliation does not mean agreement. Uh, we can, we can disagree with one another on positions. We can disagree with one another on politics. We can disagree with one another on any host of things. But if that disagreement undermines this, then we are right back in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, I want, I want to drive that home. I, that if you take anything away from this 30-minute <laughs> section, I want that to be the thing you take away. If we allow anything to define our community, me and all the other teenagers versus the adults, me and all the other millennials versus the young people, me, I'm not a millennial, uh, me and all the other whatevers, <laughs> me and all the other OPC ministers against the less orthodox <laughs> people or whatever. If we allow anything to define us other than the Lord's Supper and the communion and fellowship which we have with Him, 
and with one another, then we are at least in the ballpark of what Paul is condemning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so that that is a critical uh, foundation of importance for understanding the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper obviously has been very, very differently understood, specifically in relationship to the elements. Um, Jesus said, this is my body. Jesus said, this is my blood. So is it his body? Is it his blood? Some will say, yes, it is. That's both Roman Catholics and Martin Luther. Others will say in a mystical sense. This is not just a remembrance. And the article that I read was arguing that Zwingli's position, certainly it's John Calvin's position, that, that this is more than simply, oh, hey, that bread reminds me. Oh, hey, that, that cup reminds me. It's more than just reminding me. There's Christ is here. Christ is present in this sacrament, and Christ is feeding you spiritually. And that taste of the bread in your mouth, as you chew it, you should be thinking how the gospel nourishes me, how the gospel is my source of strength and encouragement. As you drink that cup, you're, you, you should be reminding yourself of how that blood of Christ and the forgiveness as that blood is poured out upon the altar, so now that blood, as Christ turned water into wine, in a sense, he has now turned blood into wine. It is sweet. It is, it is refreshing. It is encouraging. It's celebratory. Uh, but there's a, there's a very real thing that's happening here in the Lord's Supper. And, and I think when we look at it as simply a memorial, simply a reminder, we're, we're missing some of the power of the Lord's Supper. But the confession is operating not so much with Zwingli and memorialism in the background. It's operating more with Roman Catholicism uh, in the background. And so the second section, it's directly attacking the Roman Catholics, where he says, In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or the dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself, by himself, upon the cross, once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all proper praise, all possible praise unto God for the same. So that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one, only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. I
And and so using Memorial Day as a great example, that's a a great parallel for us. So on Memorial Day, would we say that our soldiers that we are celebrating are all dying again? Right. But so, yes, yes, yes. I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. I'm not arguing, I promise. On Memorial Day, we would not say the soldiers die all over again. At the same time, if I stand up on Memorial Day and I, you know, remember the, if, if I go put flags on the cemetery or there's a place out here on Route 7 that they always put flags out, uh, if I go put a flag out, does that mean that I am as brave as these men and women who have died for my country. Right. Right. So, that's exactly right. That's exactly what Section 2 is saying. That's exactly what Section 2 is saying. Section 2 is saying, on Memorial Day, we're not killing the soldiers all over again. We're remembering their death. We're remembering their sacrifice. That's all Section 2 is saying. The Roman Catholic Church says Christ is sacrificed every time that we have, they call it the Mass, but, but the Lord's Supper. They will say Christ is being sacrificed. No, it doesn't make it true. And that's why our confession is saying this is not true. But we need to understand what, you know, because particularly in that day. Uh, but, I mean, here, <laughs> here uh, uh, I'm out of time. <laughs> so I won't go further. I'll just camp on this one for a second. I think one of the controversies over the past 20 or 30 years in the American evangelical church has been this issue. Are Roman Catholics brothers and sisters in the Lord? Some of them are. Is the church as a whole a, a true church? Right. So, over the past, and those of you who are a certain age uh, will may remember this, over the past 20, 30 years, there was a real movement for evangelicals and Roman Catholics to come together. It was actually called ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Uh, 
And the, the, the motivation was to stand up for the unborn, uh, and presumably there were some other social uh, concerns, but, but particularly it was the unborn. We need to stop yelling at each other because millions of babies are being murdered in the womb every year. And so we need to put aside our differences, stand together on this very critical issue of the sanctity of life. And then there were some guys like R.C. Sproul who said, wait a minute, I'm all for the sanctity of life, but we can't overlook the fact that this is a different church. <laughs> they teach a different thing. <laughs> and and so I think that's where uh, Westminster is coming in and, and pointing out the error. Because certainly in their day, there's going to be a lot of people that are going, who cares if we're Roman Catholic? Who cares if we're Protestant? Remember, this is all happening during Cromwell and the interregnum. And, and you know, King Charles I is a Roman Catholic king, and he gets overthrown and beheaded. And Oliver Cromwell comes in, and supposedly this is the Puritan protectorate. Uh, into regnum, and then King Charles II is is replaced, and he becomes a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church, and and so you've got all these sorts of things where people are saying, let's put aside religious differences and let's just all get along, because it's impacting their lives directly, and so I think that's why the confession is being so clear to say. What Rome believes regarding this foundational thing, this mark of the church, what Rome believes is damnable heresy. Uh, the confession uses the language of most injurious to the Christian faith. <laughs> uh, and, and so it's using very, very pointed language to to try to cause people to remember, listen, as much as we might have in common, as much as we might want to work together on issues, uh, we, need to, we need to acknowledge that this is not true. Christ is not being re-sacrificed, because that's what Rome teaches. Uh, but with that, I am over time. Uh, so, Lord willing, we will pick it up next week with section three. Bottom line... First section, section one, the Lord's Supper is saying, I am Christ's, not the world's. It's also saying, we together are one body. And then, secondly, Rome is wrong. <laughs> uh, Rome's view of it is, is wrong. So let me, let me close this with a prayer, and then we can uh, go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you that... You have given to us this sacrament to unite us to Christ and to one another. Lord, help us never to take our eyes off of that, uh, to live that in our private and public uh, walk with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.